Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. I'm Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from AS220 in Providence, Rhode Island. The vicious depravity of Donald Trump's fear-mongering, xenophobic, and anti-Muslim politics are in full swing. The man, who is most certainly but surreally our president, has barred people from seven Muslim-majority countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, including, to an unclear and ultimately walk-back degree, lawful permanent residents, from entering the United States for 90 days. All refugees are barred for 120 days, and refugees from Syria are barred indefinitely. What's gotten less attention, but is also quite serious, is that Trump slashed the overall number of refugees slated to be admitted this year by more than half. Meanwhile, on the racist scapegoating of Mexicans front, he has moved to construct more border wall, widen the definition of which undocumented immigrants should be prioritized for deportation, and cut federal funding to localities which refuse to let their police departments cooperate with deportations, though it is unclear to what extent such cuts will be legally possible. The Muslim ban, notably, does not apply to many Muslim-majority countries where the governments are powerful U.S. allies, including Saudi Arabia, a U.S.-backed Salafist oil oligarch regime that pushes its violent and fundamentalist creed around the world. By contrast, according to the Libertarian Cato Institute, foreigners from those seven banned nations have killed zero Americans in terrorist attacks on U.S. soil between 1975 and the end of 2015. This is far-right, hateful political theater with cruel political and human consequences. And it's also the extreme outcome of anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, and militarist policies pursued for years by the bipartisan political establishment. It has nothing to do with keeping Americans safe and everything to do with Trump inflaming the far-right nationalism that drove his campaign and, in the process, playing into ISIS's objective of making it seem as though the West and Islam are incompatible. On Saturday night, federal judges issued limited orders protecting non-citizens with valid visas who had arrived at airports from being deported under the bans, and thousands of protesters moved quickly to demonstrate nationwide. Last night, Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, a holdover from the Obama administration, announced that the Justice Department would not defend the bans in court and was promptly fired. The fight, in courtrooms and on the streets, is far from over. Today, we bring you two interviews. The first is with Nico Espiritu from the National Immigration Law Center, one of the groups mounting legal challenges against the ban. Nico will explain the legal and constitutional challenges to the Muslim and refugee ban. The second is with Linda Sarsour, the executive director of the Arab American Association of New York, a leading supporter of Bernie Sanders' primary bid and co-chair of the Women's March on Washington. Nico, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having me. Trump has banned entry to the U.S. for foreign nationals from seven Muslim-majority countries and also enacted a preferential system for refugees who are religious minorities, by which Trump has made clear he means Christians. So a basic constitutional problem here is the First Amendment's Establishment Clause, which prohibits the government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion. And according to the Supreme Court, the clearest command of the Establishment Clause is that one religious denomination cannot be officially preferred over another. 
Explain the challenge your and other groups are mounting and what legal legal and constitutional issues are at play. Absolutely. You identify a huge problem there. So even by the very text of the statute, which seems to favor religious minorities over, say, the majority from that country, there's a clear thumb on the scale in terms of uh, uh, some form of religious preference. This is precisely the kind of even subtle preference for religious minorities that has been a bedrock of our constitutional, uh, our constitutional system of government and of our civil liberties. But the problem just doesn't extend there. It is clear from President Trump's rhetoric throughout his campaign, in which he ran on a vehemently anti-Muslim platform, that the entirety of the, of the executive order is an attempt to enact a de facto ban on Muslims, or at least a very slow, uh, a, a drastic slowing of Muslim immigration and refugees into our country. Uh, and we've seen that this ban, which targets seven predominantly Muslim countries for a, a period of time, as well as the drastic reduction of number of refugees, will have that effect, especially given the fact that some of the areas most in need of refugee assistance come from predominantly Muslim countries. So is the challenge uh, primarily one that has to do with uh, the Establishment Clause, or are there other, are there other legal and constitutional matters that you guys are bringing uh, into court? There are definitely other, other problems at play. Just as the, just as, uh, the executive order establishes a, a preference for Christians versus Muslims, it also, in doing so, uh, violates the equal protection guarantees of the Constitution, particularly the equal protection guarantees uh, found in the, in the Fifth Amendment, uh, which apply to the federal government. Here, we've seen just constant irregularity from the, the federal government in terms of how they've implemented this executive order. We've seen statements indicating uh, animus against uh, Muslims and individuals from Muslim countries. These are elements which go to show that an equal protection violation has occurred. So we have, in addition to the Establishment Clause problems, we also have equal protection violations here through the executive order. But even there, the problems don't stop. These provisions are in violation of the anti-discrimination provisions contained within the INA, which are designed to stop precisely this kind of uh, animus-based discrimination between groups. We have to remember that unfortunately, our immigration system was one that was founded on racial discrimination at the very beginning. Luckily, Congress enacted legislation designed to stop precisely this kind of discrimination occurring and has then uh, placed uh, anti-discrimination provisions within the INA itself. So we also have statutory problems uh, with the president's executive order. Um, You're referring to a law passed in the 1960s, correct? That's correct. So this is this is this. I mean, and the, it's important to remember that 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 1960s law was part of a reform, a civil rights reform that was uh, that was was part and parcel of the civil rights reforms that were occurring at that time. It was designed to um, to overturn the kinds of racial and national preferences that had been uh, long standing in immigration law, 
and move us in a direction where uh, impermissible, dis- impermissible discrimination didn't permeate either our, uh, either our national landscape and didn't permeate our, our immigration reform, our immigration system either. Um, defenders of, the, of uh, Trump's uh, executive uh, orders might argue that his, Im- the president's immigration powers override any of the constitutional concerns that you brought up. But a few days ago, law professor Adam Cox wrote that the president's powers over immigration are often exaggerated, leading to the false belief that we have a strictly territorial constitution, um, when in fact, non-citizens, including those who are not even present in the United States, do have rights under our Constitution, uh, correct? That's correct. There is an exaggerated idea of this, this so-called plenary power. It's a doctrine, once again, very much rooted in the racist history of our immigration law, which has been, uh, which has been disavowed by the courts um, through a series of cases which have recognized due process and other constitutional rights for non-citizens um, in the context of 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 uh, recent precedent, and this also uh, extends um, by analogy to protections like the Fifth Amendment's anti-discrimination protections, as well as the Establishment Clause's protections. The president's power can't be seen as a uh, as a blank check to override the Constitution. That would create a serious constitutional crisis if it was to be interpreted that way, um, especially in our new globalizing world. And I think for this reason, the courts have rightly recognized that such untrammeled power uh, can't, be, can't reside in the executive branch and must be checked by the necessary other constitutional protections. Now, um, Trump is saying that this isn't a Muslim ban because, however implausibly, it targets countries rather than a religion. Tell me about what role proving intentional discrimination will play uh, in the lawsuits currently bringing bo- uh, currently uh, uh, being brought, including Rudy Giuliani's recent assertion that the Trump administration had consulted him as to how to make a Muslim ban work legally. I think the best analogy really is um, is that there are ways to prove intentional discrimination um, through mechanisms other than having a discriminatory uh, policy that is discriminatory on its face or where an individual has uh, concurrently with the passage of the law said, I'm doing X for discriminatory reason. In reality, we're fairly close to that. Um, both with uh, Rudy Giuliani's statement um, stating what he believed the, the, the president's uh, purpose to be, but also the president's previous statements, his statements regarding uh, the need to have uh, – that this was designed to serve Christians and Christian minorities. All these statements provide very strong indication of the discriminatory intent that, uh, that President Trump had in – signing this executive order. The Supreme Court, though, has in the past upheld blatantly discriminatory immigration policies. Why are Trump's bans different? Are they different in terms of the law, or are we just in a different time, both politically and in terms of the jurisprudence? It's really it's really a bit of both. Um, immigration law has evolved. There has been a recognition that, um, that the so-called plenary power isn't at, at a minimum, it has to be backed by 
governmental action has to be has to be connected to some kind of uh, rational basis. But even here, even past that, there's been recognition that the constitutional protections don't disappear, even uh, even in the face of assertions of plenary power. So the the court's jurisprudence really does demonstrate that the idea of unchecked executive power in the immigration field or for that matter unchecked congressional power in the 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 immigration field is one is a relic of history and it's a relic of history of a time when there was explicit preferences given to uh, Europeans versus uh, non-white immigrants since that time we've we've developed our jurisprudence to find that the other constitutional protections do protect uh, individuals even when even in the immigration field but further we are in a different place we're in a different time in which we recognize that uh, in which we recognize that this kind of very kind of blatantly uh, discriminatory policy isn't good for public policy and as a matter of fact, isn't what the American people want. And I think that uh, I think that the legislators here, the legislators seeing the protest, as well as the courts, will recognize that um, both legally and politically, uh, this country isn't in a place where it's willing to accept this kind of uh, improper discrimination. Over the weekend, federal judges issued limited orders against the bans. Um, tell me what they ordered and what their impact will be and what the legal fight will look like going forward. Also yesterday, Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, um, a holdover from the Obama administration while Jeff Sessions awaits confirmation, uh, defiantly refused to defend the bans in court, and she was then fired. So tell me a little bit about what the, the legal picture is right now and, and what it'll look like in the coming weeks. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's a, it's a little bit of a convoluted picture, uh, in part because the response that we saw over the weekend was really an emergency response to the exigencies of the fact that people were going to be returned to their home countries, um, severely limiting the ability to bring legal claims on, on these individuals' behalf, but more importantly, often returning individuals to countries where they feared persecution and perhaps even death. Um, in the case that I'm counsel in, the, the Darwish case in New York, challenging the detention of two individuals as well as uh, a class of similarly situated individuals in, in New York that were being detained in John F. Kennedy Airport, our clients were Iraqi nationals that um, had worked for the the U.S. government, um, both as a translator and as an accountant, and feared uh, and and feared violence in their home country, and so had been granted uh, visas to travel here and to reside here. What happened was that when we received uh, a call from our partner, the uh, the International Refugee Assistance Project. Um, that their clients were being detained. Um, m uh, myself, other lawyers from the National Immigration Law Center, as well as the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project and the uh, and the uh, Yale Immigration Clinic, um, put together emergency papers to to stop the deportation of these individuals. So the, I should say the removal of these individuals. Um, and there we um, we sought uh, an emergent we sought, we uh, we entered a habeas petition um, as a technical matter that 
and then and sought an emergency emergency stay of all return of individuals um, pursuant to the executive order. Uh, later that same Saturday, we got an order from the 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 district court granting a nationwide stay in our case. However, at the same time, uh, while we were waiting for this, there were individuals de- detained in in airports throughout the country, and other advocates also rushed to step up to make sure that uh, their clients were protected. And we ended up getting uh, some other um, some other injunctions in place in um, in Virginia. We saw a an injunction that both prohibited the returning of uh, legal permanent residents, uh, green card holders, to to the countries from which they had traveled, um, but also granted uh, attorney access, which is something that um, I'd like to return to if I get a chance, and, as well as in other um, in other locations such as in Los Angeles. Um, as events unfolded in the in the additional hours, we saw that individuals were still being returned in violation of the order, and the federal judge even um, ordered the return of an individual who had already um, been removed and was on a flight out of the country. Um, and so what we saw in the coming days was emergency measures designed to stop the, the removal of these individuals uh, affected by the executive order um, in the interim. But what hadn't happened at that point was a direct challenge to the executive order itself. Um, and that's where we are right now. We know that the state of Washington has filed a lawsuit directly challenging the executive order. Um, I believe that there is a couple more lawsuits filed um, throughout the country, and you'll probably see more challenges in the coming days uh, um, directly to the executive order. And what is the impact of uh, Yates' um, decision to not defend the order, and what is the impact of her being fired and thus the Department of Justice not having anyone at the helm? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, As for the impact of Yates' order, the impact uh, is symbolic, but I think it's a very powerful symbolic one. Here we had a career, uh, we had a a career uh, governmental lawyer uh, willing to analyze the law for herself uh, to determine whether she felt as a matter of her obligation to defend the Constitution, whether she could enforce the order uh, and whether she could order her subordinates to enforce the order. And uh, despite pressure, um, uh, Yates decided not to, that she couldn't uh, she couldn't she couldn't enforce the order and so in our view properly instructed the attorneys underneath her uh, not to do the same um, the firing unfortunately and unexpectedly uh, President Trump then subsequently uh, fired her um, and um, I believe nominated another individual to the acting post I, I don't have her name in front of me um, but um, and it's unclear whether this new replacement has made any statements in terms of whether or not she'll enforce the order. 
but I think the question is really important to think about in terms of the, the longer term, and that's the person ultimately who will be charged with enforcing this executive order, as well as other executive orders, will be the attorney general. And currently we have a nominee for attorney general, uh, Senator Jeff Sessions, who is um, who has a history of uh, racism, who has a history of using his office when he served as deputy attorney general uh, to trammel the rights of minorities, um, and who has previously made statements indicating that he would support uh, Muslim bans, much like we're seeing now. This is very troubling because this is the removal of Yates and the potential uh, confirmation of Sessions is going to be a removal of one of the checks that we need to have on the power of the president, um, especially at a time when... um, we have a president who is willing to engage in actions um, such as the executive order that we um, are currently fighting. Um, now, the Trump administration did backtrack somewhat amidst all of the widespread protests and legal challenges and clarify that green card holders, lawful permanent residents, um, would not be banned, at least not entirely, though it's sort of fuzzy, it seems. Um, what do you, can you explain um, that shift, um, what it means legally and politically? I I wish I could explain that shift. Um, You you know, I'm I'm speculating as to what that shift is about. I think in the best case scenario, it shows incompetence and disregard for clearly established rights of individuals with longstanding and legally protected rights to uh, be in this country. And that's at best. but I don't think that that's where the answer ultimately lies. Um, I I think that uh, I think that as we through the course of litigation start to understand the decisions that the executive branch made with regards to this executive order, I think it will become more clear that um, that individuals, even legal permanent, they disregard the rights of legal permanent residents um, from these seven countries and uh, uh, in part because of their um, perceived religious affiliations. Um, Tell me about how it's currently playing out on the ground in airports. There have been reports that some Customs and Border uh, officials have not complied with um, judicial orders. Um, what do you know, and is it possible that Trump intends to defy the judiciary? Um, we do know that there has been some defiance. That we do know that there um, has been, in other cases, what might be better described as resistance, uh, slow walking of release of individuals, uh, a consistent asserting of rights of. Uh, a consistent asserting that individuals in detention don't have rights to counsel, um, and essentially um, a a confrontational attitude by the um, by many of the Customs and Border officers. Now, uh, we don't know why the the these individuals adopted this approach we don't know if this was um systemic we don't know if this was orders from um the 
the that came directly from the executive branch itself. Um, but it would be extremely troubling if that was the case. Uh, and it would be uh, truly a, a constitutional crisis if, in fact, that was the case. It seems that at the very least that it, it seems that some uh, certain institutions like the State Department, the rank and file, um, have a certain skepticism and hostility towards Trump's policies, while in others, such as CPB, um, that there is quite a bit of enthusiasm for um, pretty extreme actions against against immigrants and refugees. I think that um, that's the, definitely the indication that we're getting from the responses from uh, various branches of the executive. Um, and it should be noted that in series of litigation that uh, advocates like myself brought over years against uh, CBP, uh, that this agency has um, very much fought any kind of oversight or accountability, whether it be through Freedom of Information Act requests or even um, how investigations and oversight into how it runs its detention centers um, to its accountability and its treatment of individuals that um, it, it engages with or, um, or arrests. It is... It had been my hope that during the last administration that something could be done to um, make CBP a more accountable uh, agency, just from the perspective of of what is good government and what is good governance. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have happened, and the fear is that that same tendency will just be emboldened under the Trump administration. Well, that um, leads me to my next question, pretty, uh, which is, if the courts do conclude that this goes too far, and let's hope they do, isn't it true that past presidents, Congresses, and the judiciary have already given uh, extreme leeway to the executive over um, immigration? I'm thinking of the ease, for example, with which lawful permanent residents can be deported for committing even relatively minor crimes, uh, thanks to legislation signed during the Clinton administration. Um, if the president's powers don't, uh, over immigration, don't extend to the band, don't those powers, as they have been uh, construed in recent years, still go too far? Isn't the immigration status quo, even before Trump, um, pretty nightmarish for the people caught up inside it? I'm glad you. I'm, I'm. I'm glad you asked that because, as we've seen both in short-term detention facilities, in the experiences of immigrants in this country who have had to try to navigate the immigration system, in the experiences of undocumented immigrants who, uh, who often have no means of regularizing their status, um, and in the experience of undocumented workers who are more, more vulnerable to exploitation, we have an immigration system that is both fundamentally broken and unfair. Um, and that was not fixed during the last administration. Um, and there were, in addition, both there were some laudatory policies passed, but there were far more um, policies which uh, continued the immiseration of, uh, of these populations. Um, something needs to be done to 
fix this fundamentally broken system. As you mentioned, this is a product of the 1990s legislative changes, which made um, which much more criminalized uh, uh, immigrants in this society and made them much more vulnerable. Uh, we see it as part and parcel of a of a trend during the same time, the the, the 90s uh, Clinton years, which increased the incarceration rates of African Americans by um, putting in um, draconian and discriminatory uh, sentencing uh, sentencing laws, as well as um, other other parts of the so-called um, war on crime that were passed during this time. The the legislation that um, severely restricted immigrants' ability to um, get needed social services were part of the same um, so-called welfare reforms that uh, inc- that uh, furthered the poverty of uh, working class and people of color throughout this country. Luckily, maybe not luckily, but we are beginning to see at the very nascent stages a sense that these policies, at least as they as least as far as they go in terms of the the problem they've created in terms of criminalizing people of color need to be changed. We're starting to see some, maybe even bipartisan consensus that there needs to be a repeal and, and change of uh, our criminal justice system. This same change needs to happen in our overall immigration system. Um, we're not there yet the the discourse hasn't gotten there yet the political will to do such a thing hasn't gotten there yet but that isn't going to stop uh, uh, immigrants um, from advocating for such changes and we hope that um, we hope to continue to do so whether it be at the state and local level um, or or hopefully in the coming years with a, a with a Congress that may be able to see that such changes are required. Um, My last question is the Muslim ban has garnered perhaps the most attention, but Trump has also shut down refugee resettlement across the board for 120 days, uh, blocked Syrian refugee resettlement indefinitely and significantly, and this has gotten very little coverage, halved the number, more than halved the number of refugees slated to be resettled in the United States this year. Um, that's all obviously extremely odious, um, but is there any legal remedy for those actions? Well, for the our position is that the executive order in total was motivated by uh, impermissible animus and an impermissible desire to um, privilege one religious group over another. And so to that extent, everything that you mentioned, the 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 temporary ban on refugees, the permanent ban on Syrian refugees, and the having of the total number of refugees uh, furthers this goal of of their goal of of perhaps lessening the number of Muslim refugees that can come to this country, and so we believe that it it and the executive order in total is in fact unconstitutional. But there may be additional statutory arguments as to why um, such discrimination in 
in refugee resettlement policies is, is similarly unconstitutional. And likewise, um, there may be additional statutory reasons why uh, such changes to the numbers of uh, refugees who can be resettled is improper at this particular juncture. And so uh, um, we'll be pursuing all legal options to ensure that that this country is meeting its international moral obligation to um, to provide refuge to um, folks fleeing um, war and um, other extreme forms of violence and oppression. Um, before we finish up, is there any, any last things that you'd like to note on the bans and the legal challenges to them that you think listeners should know? I think listeners... I think listeners have seen what they should know. They've seen that the citizens of this country are not willing to put up with such draconian policies. We've seen individuals at airports throughout the country, thousands and thousands of individuals who are standing up and saying that such discrimination is not who we are as a people. It's not who we are um, as a nation. And we're sending a message to... Uh, this administration and our other fellow citizens that the voice of this country um, will be heard. It wasn't heard through the last election. We and because that because President Trump did not have the majority of of votes from the the electorate of this country. But instead, the voice of this nation will be heard in the coming years, and they are calling for. Uh, accountability and humanity and policies. And that's going to uh, necessitate a fundamental change in, um, in the executive um, in the coming years. Nico, thanks so much. Thank you. Linda, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. So public policy in the U.S. has long been permeated by explicit or implicit racism, but these bans brazenly targeting Muslim immigrants and shutting down refugee resettlement are still pretty shocking. What's the human impact of these bans, and how are Arabs and Muslims here and abroad responding? I mean, they're absolutely um, outrageous. Uh, fortunately, I'm not shocked because President Trump told us he was going to do this during the election. So what he's doing is keeping his promises to a very small base um, that helped elect him into office. And it has grave impact on um, not just people with visas, but also American citizens who are uh, petitioning for family and relatives to come to the United States. There have uh, been reports of people whose uh, visa applications have been canceled or they have been sent away at the airports while their family members are waiting for them here in the United States of America. We've, um, you know, uh, deported like Iranian, uh, you know, medical students who are doing residency in the United States, probably saved a couple of lives and had Iranian grandmothers crying at airports, 75 year old women. That's who we're trying to keep America safe from. And the implications about creating more hostility towards the United States. Um, So, for example, we saw the response from the Iranian government was to ban U.S. citizens from traveling from traveling to Iran so that people after the nuclear deal, as you know, it was an opportunity for these two people, the American people and the Iranian people to do business together, to travel to each other's countries. And now we have, you know, these outrageous policies that are creating more tensions 
um, in the Middle East. Um, so the, all around absolutely outrageous and definitely unconstitutional. And one of the reasons why I know it's unconstitutional is because the deputy, um, the, the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, basically said she would not defend the indefensible. So she was fired for that because she did not want to defend the executive order because she knew that it was unconstitutional. So yeah, it's just drama everywhere. There have been huge demonstrations all across the country in recent days against the bans. Tell me about um, the organizing that you're seeing and where you see it heading. I think ever since the first day of Trump's office, which was the day after inauguration with the Women's March on Washington, which was which I was honored to be one of the national co-chairs for, we've seen continued mass mobilization across the country. Literally every single day, there's something going on somewhere, including in response to the Muslim ban uh, at airports across the country. I mean, attorneys, both from private firms and some of the most amazing organizations in this country, including, you know, uh, the ACLU, the Council on American Islamic Relations, um, the NAACP, Legal Defense and Education Fund, and others who have been stepping up and at, literally setting up shop in airports across America, uh, ensuring that legal permanent residents and those who have traveled to the United States legally are let into our country. Um, we watched a judge in Brooklyn grant a stay uh, immediately um, after it was filed um, by the ACLU. So. The the or I believe wholeheartedly that the legal strategy is very important and very crit- critical, but I think what's also important is um, the actual mass mobilization that's helping create the sentiment for those to make the right decision. So this is going to continue because every single day there's something new out and out and some new outrageous executive order or policy that's coming out from this administration. Somewhat paradoxically, the anti-Muslim fervor in the U.S. seems stronger and more virulent today than it did in the days and months and years after September 11th. On the other hand, on the left, there seems to be a much stronger movement to stand in solidarity with Muslims than there was back then. How would you compare these two moments and why is there so much Islamophobia right now? It seems that Muslims, refugees, immigrants um, are not only a convenient scapegoat for terrorism today, but nearly a decade after the financial crisis hit for just about everything. Absolutely. I mean, it is 100% accurate that you know, we are Muslim Americans are suffering um, now more than they did uh, from backlash than they did even weeks and days and months after 9-11. That's that's just facts. Um, There's been an exponential increase in hate crimes against Muslims and those perceived to be Muslims against houses of worship. And that's not me saying that that's statistics that have been provided by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I think the reason why we're seeing such a rise in Islamophobia, and this is also before Trump, but in the last few years, is really it escalated under the Obama administration as the right wing and what we call now the alt-right was going after President Obama and calling him a Muslim. It was just much more socially acceptable to uh, vilify a man by calling him a Muslim, which it shouldn't have mattered if he was or not. Um, and the constant attacks on uh, the, on President uh, Obama at the time. And then from there, the kind of terrorism that we've seen um, in some parts of the world uh, uh, escalated as the United States um, media, as well as members of the government and also hate groups um, continued to conflate all Muslims with um, terror attacks across the country. So it's been an unfortunate situation. Uh, and we saw this play out again, you know, this, this week, yesterday, where a white nationalist and Trump supporter in Canada walked into a mosque and killed six people as they were praying. And um, the media immediately came out and said it was a Moroccan Muslim man that did it, when in fact that was absolutely inaccurate and false. Um, Same thing they did at the Boston bombings when they put a picture of two young Algerian boys with 
book bags and said, here they are, the bagmen. And in fact, they were not the perpetrators of the act of of terror in Boston. So the media has played a huge role in in perpetrating uh, stereotypes and misinformation that has led to uh, attacks and bigotry against Muslims. The Obama team's sort of response to the accusation that he was a Muslim wasn't exactly very helpful to the fight against Islamophobia because they sort of characterized that as a smear rather than just an inaccuracy. And uh, also uh, because of of the mounting Islamophobia, refused to set foot for a long time, uh, not only in a mosque, but even in a uh, Sikh temple because he would have had to cover his his head in some way. And he was worried about how the right wing uh, extremists would characterize that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, neither did, you know, President Obama later on in his presidency did become a little more courageous about standing up for Muslim Americans and did visit a mosque in Baltimore that I was uh, able to attend. But absolutely right. I mean, the originally during the campaign, during his campaign, they actually uh, had a page on the website where they were trying to demystify myths against um, President Obama and basically saw him being called a Muslim as a smear. And then we watched John McCain when he was uh, approached at a town hall say, no, no, no. President Obama is a good family man when a woman uh, said that he, she thought he was Arab or Muslim. So so, so th- that, that's really problematic. I think one of the only people who really stood up, believe it or not, was Colin Powell when asked, you know, is Obama a Muslim? And he said, what if he was? Um, and that's the kind of response that we should have, regardless of someone's faith, you know, national origin, sexual orientation, um, when it comes to any high uh, elected office. So it's been a problem in this country that, you know, a bigotry against Muslims has been unfortunately more normalized. People don't see the consequences of, you know, perpetrating any type of bigotry or hateful speech towards Muslims, which is why someone like President Trump is now the president of the United States of America. On on the flip side, uh, there's been, on the one hand, there's been this rising Islamophobia that's in part been uh, resulted in the election of Donald Trump. But on the other side, uh, there does seem to be, at least on the left, um, a much stronger movement to stand in solidarity with Muslims than there was back then. Do you agree? Oh, I- Back in by when absolutely, yeah. I, I think what has happened over the past few years is that the progressive movement um, it wasn't enough for the elections, but the progressive movement has started to be a lot more intersectional than we have in the past, um, and there has been a lot of cross community solidarity. You know, uh, you know, undocumented folks standing with Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter standing with undocumented folks, climate justice folks, you know, racial justice, economic justice, and. I think for me personally, I think the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, which I was a national surrogate for, really helped me um, build a lot of relationships um, and and really be able to put forth a message from the Muslim community. We are a progressive community that we stand um, for economic justice, racial justice, um, religious freedom. Uh, And the message has gone far out in the in the left where the left has now seen the uh, you know, that this is the time for us to stand up for religious freedom, stand up for Muslim American communities who, whether people want to agree or not, are of the most marginalized communities right now in the United States, as some people, you know, will will portray Muslims as, you know, foreigners and people who are from the Middle East or South Asia, when in fact, one third of American Muslims are African-American. So there's been a lot of education, a lot of solidarity building over the past few years. And now we're getting to see what it looks like in public. And we saw that starting at the Women's March on Washington, where you had a stage led by women, where women's reproductive rights, economic justice, racial justice, criminal justice reform, climate justice, 
religious uh, freedom folks literally st- stood on one stage and said, we will fight together, we will win together, we will lose together. And I don't think that we've seen that type of manifestation of solidarity for each other's movements in a really long time or ever. There was a remarkable story during the Democratic primary that didn't get much coverage that Bernie Sanders, who would have been the United States's first Jewish president, did better amongst Arab and Muslim Americans than almost any other community in the country. Oh, I think it, I would say it would even push that a little farther and say in history. And I think one of the stories that was not told as much as it should have is that, you know, it went down and in history that, you know, uh, Senator Sanders during the campaign won the state of Michigan and Nate Silver and many other pundits and analysts said that it was the biggest political upset in U.S. history as someone who was down in the polls 20 percent in the state of Michigan. And when Election Day came, a place like Dearborn, one of the most highly concentrated Muslim and Arab communities in the country, voted for uh, Senator Sanders three to one to Hillary Clinton. So that and and here we go, a a Jewish American, uh, a child of Polish immigrants from Brooklyn, New York, literally carried the Muslim vote throughout the country. Um, and, And that was a story that wasn't told in the way that it should have. Again, a lot of misinformation um, about the Muslim community, a lot of um, accusations oftentimes by the right wing of Muslims being anti-Semitic when they themselves are Semitic people. And also in the, you know, in the solidarity, when you talk about in the left, you know, one of our biggest allies in the progressive left are Jewish Americans. Um, they are at the front lines of combating Islamophobia and standing in solidarity with Muslim communities and religious leaders. To put Trump's bans in more of a a global and foreign policy context, Glenn Greenwald recently noted that the bans are a cruel culmination of U.S. foreign policy. Um, Five of the seven predominantly Muslim countries on Trump's list were bombed by Obama, um, while the other two, he writes, Iran and Sudan, were punished with heavy sanctions. According to Greenwald, thus, Trump is banning immigrants from the very countries that the U.S. government, under both Republicans and Democrats, has played a key role in destabilizing and destroying. I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, we bomb them and then we tell them that they're banned from coming to the country. We have created so much destabilization within the Middle East. um, And right now we continue to create more destabilization and hostility amongst um, some factions, in particular, you know, extreme violent terrorist groups. We're literally aiding them at this moment with these types of bans. And again, as I said earlier, you know, Iran decided to ban U.S. citizens from traveling to um, Iran and other countries may follow suit. You know, we don't know um, what's going to happen. And I think people, you know, regardless of what political ideology people are, people need to be outraged that President Donald Trump and his executive orders, um, at least up to what we have seen right now in the cases of the Muslim ban, are are going to be um, a national security threat um, to us. And if the idea is to keep America safe, this is not the way to do it. Um, so, and, and just to make a, a point, people say, well, Linda, it's only seven countries. That wouldn't really count as a Muslim ban. And I want to remind people that under the Bush administration, when, they, when we created a Muslim registry program called NCERS, which required Muslim males over the age of 16 who were also visa holders or not legal permanent residents and U.S. citizens to come register with the federal government if they were residing in the U.S., we started out with a list of six countries. And then the two weeks later, we added another four. And then a week after that, we added another five. We ended up having 27 Muslim majority countries on that list. And the only country on the list that actually wasn't a Muslim majority country was North Korea. Every other country was a Muslim majority country. So he's setting precedent. And I, I read the executive order that said that they are allowed to review and potentially add more countries. So we really need to keep our eyes open on what's happening um, and seeing these executive orders expand beyond where they are right now. What do you see as the um, 
purpose of the executive order? Is it is it is it uh, red meat for his far right base? Is it uh, sincerely held Islamophobia on Trump's behalf? How do you parse it? Uh, I think it's both, and I don't think, to be honest with you, um, I don't know if if Donald Trump is a true Islamophobe at heart. But I will tell you, Steve Bannon is. And if we if anyone here has if, if any any American with any sense right now would understand that the man making the decisions, the puppeteer is Steve Bannon. And he might as well call himself the president of the United States. One thing that people are missing during this whole controversy on the executive order to ban Muslims is that Steve Bannon got a seat on the National Security Council. So he has taken a position that has usually been left for um has usually been left for top military generals. And the fact that Steve Bannon, who has no experience other other than running a very racist, white supremacist, white nationalist media outlet, is now holding a seat on the National Security Council. So I think that the the folks that Trump has put around him, including General Michael Flynn, which is a top national security advisor who has called Islam a malignant cancer, um, the people he's, um, Mike Pompeo, who is now the CIA director, once said that, it, any Muslim who does not condemn terrorism is actually uh, aiding and abetting terrorism. We are complicit in terrorism. That's what he said, which is very outstanding and outrageous coming from the CIA director. So just it's it's about the company that you keep more than what type of feelings Trump himself harbors. I don't think he has that power. I think he's just signing whatever comes to his desk because it makes him feel important. To what degree is Trump's approach to Islamophobia new and to what degree is it a continuation of an Islamophobia that despite George Bush, uh, W. Bush saying that Islam is a religion of peace after September 11th, uh, to, to what degree is it a continuation of the war on terror's inherent Islamophobia? Um, to what degree, to the extent that the war on terror has required a perpetual stigmatization and scapegoating of Muslims? I think what we've sold the American people over the past 15 years is there has to be a scapegoat and there has to be um, ways to justify the massive funding that we give law enforcement agencies, including some of our top law enforcement agencies like the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security. So what Trump and his people are doing is a continuation times 1000 of what we've already seen. So this is nothing new to Muslim Americans, except that we have we have seen some sort of checks and balances in the past. Now we have none. We, the Democrats have none of the branches of government. You have a rogue uh, president and, a, and a, you know, an administration that is firing uh, you know, attorney generals who are trying to protect the Constitution of the United States of America. So we, it's basically a continuation of what we were already experiencing, except now the fear factor is a lot more because we don't trust this administration. Not that we didn't experience this under Obama, but we felt at least with Obama there was some sort of at least on the domestic level, there was he was he was a, a bit better domestically on standing up for Muslims and trying to create uh, some sort of sanity amongst the people. But I don't believe this administration is willing to do that. Tell me a little bit about the FBI's history of surveilling and infiltrating uh, Muslim American communities and how things uh, you fear could get worse under President Trump now? I mean, these are not only my words, in my opinion, it's uh, based on FOIA records of the FBI. But, in you know, what I worry more about is local law enforcement agencies engaging in unwarranted surveillance of local communities, just as we saw the New York Police Department in, in the Associated Press investigative report spying on all mosques in New York City, about 250 of them, you know, religious leaders, Muslim student associations, Islamic schools, cafes and businesses. And we saw those secret documents that were leaked. So we feel like local law enforcement agencies will be more emboldened under a 
Trump administration to engage in, type, in this type of unconstitutional spying on American citizens based on faith. Uh, and we've seen it already happen. So imagine under an administration that has said during the campaign that we need to monitor all mosques in America. So, of course, the community is on edge. Of course, the community is in fear uh, because, again, they've experienced this under a, a supposed left progressive administration. Imagine under a white supremacist, you know, alt-right administration. My last question is just looking forward. How um, do all the people out there who are um, uh, protesting Trump in the streets and ready to keep turning out to do what they can, how do they fight the Trump bans, Trumpism more broadly, and then one day, hopefully, um, build a society and a government that's entirely different and better? To be honest with you, as someone who's an organizer and is into mass mobilization, I don't know if this is enough for an administration like this. I don't think that our mass mobilization, other than helping the individuals at the airports, um, you know, uh, be released, I don't think that this mass mobilization tactic is going to be enough for this administration. I think we have a couple of options. You know, there has to be labor has to get involved. You know, there has to be some sort of strikes, something that really moves the economic needle in this country, something that I think Trump would be uh, concerned about. I think the, uh, if that doesn't happen, I think moving forward, people have to focus on the 2018 midterm elections and that we just got to put our people in. We got to take out those who don't stand with our values and principles. And we got to win back at least one branch of government to create some level of checks and balances. So for me personally, my eyes are on 2018, uh, you know, mobilizing voters, continuing voter registration, and really sending a powerful message. And to those in particular who didn't vote during this election, and I don't blame them, and I understand we didn't have great choices, but to understand the, gravis, the, the gravity of what happens when you don't participate in an election, you get fascism in the White House. Because fascism is here. We're, we're not trying to prevent fascism. Fascism is in the White House right now. So 2018 is where I'm focusing my energy, and I hope those that turn out to these mass mobilization, and I'm grateful for them, are going to help us turn people out to the polls. Linda, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once kind of said, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week or two. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, Jeffrey Brodsky, and Liza Yeager. Music by Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts so you can subscribe and where you can leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. The more propaganda on our behalf, the better. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking to George Chicarello-Marr about white genocide and Mark Blythe about austerity and the rise of the far right. <laughs>